Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. I first met today's guest, Elizabeth Tallerman, through our mutual friend, Kelly Hoey, over Kalamata martinis at a restaurant that unfortunately did not survive post-pandemic. And yes, Kalamata martinis are as yummy as they sound. Elizabeth Tallerman is a graduate-level teacher, four-time entrepreneur, corporate board member, and MacArthur Foundation grantee. She is the founding partner and CEO of the Nucleus Group, and works with organizations around the world to empower leaders, accelerate growth, and catalyze change. Her bio reads, and I quote, where others see limits, Elizabeth sees possibilities. And as you will hear in this episode, that embodies who she is. I knew before this conversation that besides martinis, we had some commonalities but I had no idea how much of our approach and views around the wonderful world of marketing aligned until now. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did recording this. So Elizabeth, it is a pleasure to have you here today. I'm so thrilled to be speaking with you. I always like to start all of these conversations with one that is rather general. And I like to ask my guests, where are you from? Where am I from? So I can tell you that where I'm sitting is way out on the east end of Long Island in Greenport, New York. Um, And while this had been a lovely weekend respite, like many people after COVID, it became a full-time home. But I was born in New York, grew up in the Boston area, and in 1996 got recruited by Ogilvy and Mather to come to New York. And I have never left, never wanted to. (laughs) I think that happens. I I was born in New York, too, and left for many years and then came back. And I think it was always on my thing, too. I had to be back in in good old. I at least least have to be within um, a quick train ride into the city. So we met through our mutual friend and next networking expert at the extraordinaire Kelly Hoey over martinis, which seems like forever ago. Um, And what a surprise that that was what we were having. So I knew that we were going to have some commonalities, but I had no idea how much of our perspective was in sync until I started to do my research for this podcast. So that's a basically a warning to our listeners that I don't know where this is going to go. This could take on a direction of its own, not, not one that I necessarily planned. So be forewarned. So I'm told that you're a four-time entrepreneur, so we could probably do four episodes on that, but we're not going to. So I'd like to talk about the Nucleus Group, which is one of the companies you did found, and you're currently the CEO of. So can you talk about the Nucleus Group and what makes it different in its approach than others in the industry? Sure. Um, the, The bigger question for me is, what is this industry? Is it an industry? Um, And I ask that because um, I was recently reminded, um, rereading some of the passages from a book that Debbie Millman wrote, really editing Mm -hmm. together over 20 different experts speaking about branding, that none of us agree on what it is. (laughs) And it's actually the discipline that is 
supposed to bring universal understanding to a particular concept. So where are we then? And is this an industry for so many people that talk about being part of branding? They're um, thinking specifically of visual language and um for others, um, it has more to do with what I call persuasion or the field mm -hmm. of advertising and communication. Um, for me, and this is a long evolved definition um, of both what Nucleus does and what I think branding is, um, is the study of why people do or don't connect to an idea. That idea can be a product, a service, an organization, a movement, uh, it can be a, a nonprofit. Um, it could be something like immunization or nuclear threat. So understanding why people do or don't connect to the idea is branding. Um, it also, in my view, is the confluence of design and branding, and specifically what some call human-centered design, though I can't imagine design as a human, not being centered on being a human being. Um, there, are, there are many arguments afoot to be made about that. I think people forget sometimes, because especially now, because people are so caught up in the data that we have available to us that we didn't have before. We always had data, but not to the degree that we have it now, that we forget that it, there's a psychology behind what we do. And yeah. not that the data is not important because it is important. It helps to guide. I mean, I, I know you do a lot of data stuff. So it, it helps to guide us and to make decisions. But what is that psychology behind what is going on here? And I do think that we tend, my own opinion is we tend to get a little bit away from that. Yeah. And and it's such a good point, Joanne, because everything, the way people are wired, everything starts in the limbic brain. We recognize things with our emotional, our nonverbal brain. And then um, that travels very quickly to the frontal cortex where we start to rationalize those decisions. Um, and the, the funny thing about that emotional brain um, is its connection to the idea that what we say, what we believe, and what we do are often not aligned. Um, humans aren't exactly mm -hmm. predictable species um, and they don't always act according to logic um, or rational thinking. So it's really important to try to find the language of connection, the, the reasons, the ethos, the spirit there as we then start to translate that across multitudes of people to try to figure out if there are similar patterns. Yeah, it's, um, it's, <laughs> it is interesting. And it's also interesting that you already answered my second question was how do you define branding? So, um, which again, I, I do think that if you put, I've always believed this, if you put five people in the industry, into the same room, you're going to get five different answers on everything. Although I do think um, you have an excellent one, Mike, by the way. Um, I really like the idea of what you call kitchen table ethos. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this uh, formed up incredibly organically. Um, I, uh, I don't love being in an office or traveling to an office or the confines of hierarchy that offices can have. I don't like cubes. Um, the the whole thing has made me crazy for a really long time. 
And there are a handful of spaces that I love to be in. Um, I love to be surrounded by books and reference materials. I love large tables where people can gather or spread out. And I realized it was my home that was giving me that. And that as I collaborated with other people, they wanted to be in my home. I was, I was lucky. I had a kitchen island uh, that could host a few people working and a large kitchen table that could host another group of people and a couch and a few chairs that acted like a conference room. And so everybody I worked with for the past probably 15 years has come into my space. And what's happened is a natural kind of culture. Um, I would often cook lunch for everybody. Um, And so I could meet with them. I could make something, which is part of just who I am and Mm -hmm. loving to cook and being in a kitchen without ever, you know, not being around my folks. And then we could break bread together. Um, And that is like a salve when there are frictions, when there are disagreements, just like in a family, you're talking it all out in the most nourishing environment. So Nucleus has what we call kitchen table culture. We invite our clients to the kitchen table. Um, Again, COVID changed that a bit, but we recaptured it. We have a meeting three times a week at 10 a.m., and we do a round robin. What are you reading? What's inspiring you? What are you thinking about? How are you feeling? It's super rapid. We get through it in half an hour. But it's like having that water cooler or a quick break for a cup of coffee together that just reminds us we're people first. I love that. It was you were really ahead of the game in terms of not wanting to be in offices because that is definitely a trend right now because of COVID, as so many people don't want to be back in an office. And yet you figured out a way to still, because to me, the the, the not office conversation, I, I'm someplace in between on it, because I do think that you need the community and you need that physical presence, but you figured out a way to do that without still having a traditional office. Yeah. And I think um, the folks that I work with, when we were gathering that way more often, really loved it. And we didn't do it every day of the week. It was always work from home Wednesdays and what we called roaming Fridays. So (laughs) Fridays, if you weren't around your desk, it's because you were at a museum, you were at a conference, you were getting uh, fueled up intellectually. And work from home Wednesdays came about because people have too many meetings and Mm -hmm. there's no time to get the work done. So we just created a day where there were no formal communications that were necessary. It was all optional. So we were gathering three days a week and then creating some space to really advance the work and to refuel our, our and inspire ourselves. I mean, this is a business that requires pattern recognition, which means you have to be constantly out in the world seeing how things work. And when you deny yourself that and you sit inside a conference room or talk to the same people every day, what you get is the same stuff from every assignment. And I I, I, I don't want to work that way. You know, I, I, I'm so struck by what you just said about we need to be out in the world 
to effectively do our jobs in this industry, marketing, branding, whatever we want to call it. Marketing, I guess, is the, the we like this tends to be the overarching umbrella because it's something that I'm always stressing with my students because I see people with their heads in their phones, no matter where they go. And yet the way I was taught from the beginning was to look at, well, because we didn't have these phones at that point because I'm that old, but um, <laughs> we like look around because you don't know where the ideas are. Look for the trends. You know what are people wearing on on the subway? Is there some something new there that you know we were taught to pay attention, and that is part of what makes us better at our jobs. And yet it's so much harder to do that now. And that's why I love the idea of the roaming Fridays, just to go someplace and again get your head up out of that phone, which has a lot yeah. of benefits, but. It certainly has a lot of detractors, in my opinion. Yeah, though I will say um, some of the younger people on my team are teaching me how to roam the phone and not just be in echo chambers in my phone um, or roam the world uh, that's digital. And mm -hmm. it's um, my ability to um, surf a multi-generational ethos to a, a, a multi-generational universe uh, is, is boosted by being on the phone. Because if I'm in TikTok and the TikTok culture and observing that or looking for things versus Reddit, which is, you know, all language versus, or I guess there's plenty of video, but a lot of discursive mm -hmm. um, activity versus Instagram. Um, which is a, a more visual video community of a different nature. And I can pick things up there too. But as you say, not exclusively, that's not the whole world, but it's an enormous part of the mm -hmm. world of marketing and branding and just living these days to really understand everything from commerce and economics to politics to movement building it's all there no and i i agree with you because i i do see what you're saying there the problem i think that ha can happen on the social networks is that the algorithms are dictating what you're going to see so it's still kind of keeping you in your own little eco chamber now because I teach and I wind up connecting with some of my students after they're done on instagram my feed is a mishmash of things that, you know, hey, a 28 year old is interested in and, you know, and me. <laughs> um, but again, you know, it's getting out of that echo chamber. I think that's part of it because yeah. so much of the social media is driven towards what we like and and who in our community likes what they like and, and why that's showing up. So that can really give a different picture, which I think you need a broader perspective on. But yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, it's the economics of that business, right? That's mm -hmm. It's not trying to create a free society. It's trying to make money. <laughs> that is what we're in the business of, for sure. Um, that That's for sure. However, I think a lot of people at our industry forget that the core of marketing is creating change. So so what are your thoughts? Uh, I absolutely agree with that. Um, though, what I will say is it's much harder to change someone's behavior than to align with their ambitions. So if we begin to understand why people do or don't connect with an idea, then it's incumbent upon us in marketing and branding to figure out 
what stands between, first of all, what is someone's ambitions? What are their values? And what stands between them and achieving those ambitions? I actually think I've been more successful when I've worked with brands that helped remove barriers between people and achieving an ambition. When when the brand's ambition is aligned with that person's ambition, let's face it, nobody wants to be unhealthy. So if Nike or any sporting goods company's ambition um, aligns with someone's ambition to be healthy, what barriers can you take away? Rather Mm -hmm. than persuading someone, how do you remove the barriers between someone and ambition achievement? Persuasion then plays a much smaller role, role, and persuasion is much more expensive. So um, I always try to see what are the behaviors someone is taking, what's in their way, or how do I get them to do more of something that they're already inclined to do rather than get them to make a left Wow. I'm just, I was just thinking about some of the clients that I saw you working with. And um, I think I, we, we've spoken about this before we were recording, but because your your list of clients is so impressive. I mean, from Unilever to UNICEF, which is also interesting because it seems like you do a lot of nonprofit work. And then one of my personal favorites was Nutrafol, which I guess is now part of Unilever. But um, I was fascinated that I love what you talked about with the growing brand. I thought that was fast. That was really a fascinating way to approach it. Yeah, when when they came to us um, several years before, um, we had worked with a, a massive multinational brand that has a very famous hair loss product, and they were looking at expanding uh, their audience base. Um, and I learned a lot then, but when Nutrafol came to us, um, I I I had a much more sort of cemented sense of my own values as a person in branding and marketing. And um, there are two things that are, that are vital there. I I sort of always think there are about five steps to a process. Um, And, and, but the, the two guiding principles are um, optimism. How do you frame things in the positive because I, I kind of have an allergic reaction to the negative um, <laughs> in most things in life. And the other is generosity. So I'm thinking, why would a brand want to meet a person in a moment of desperation, a moment they hope never happens again or that they turn around from? Why not meet people in a moment of hope? And my Guiding principle had to do with an adjacency to one's hair, Nutrafol, of course, being about hair, and that is the face. Mm -hmm. The face is right next to the head. And we have this beautiful uh, universal case study. Most people, most women, sometime in their 20s, start using some moisturizer on their face, some cream under their eye. And none of us resent it, actually. We look for a fun package or a new brand or a lovely scent or a beautiful emollient feeling. And it's not because we believe we won't get wrinkles. Getting old is something we want to do, right? We definitely (laughs) want to age. 
Um, so put the end to anti-aging in the negative. But we don't buy that cream to not get wrinkles. We buy that cream to have agency, to have a sense of control. Our ambition is to look like ourselves, look like our best selves. So if we've been buying hope in a jar for generations, why would I want to sell somebody a hair loss product? Mm-hmm. Why not sell somebody a hair health product or a hair growth product? Or why not just affiliate the brand with growing human mm-hmm. beings who want to grow? Um, hair being one of those things we hope to keep growing. And that's that's how the work unfolded with Nutrafol, with these two principles in place of optimism and generosity. And uh, I'm, I'm not Susie Mary Sunshine. I just think most things go down better when you are leaning into that ambition, which gives people a sense of agency and control, which creates action. And remember the age-old marketing principle, awareness, desire, intention, and action. Action can happen if you hit somebody with fear, but it's resentful. And you have to pay to have that action mm-hmm. over and over and over again, rather than leaning into somebody's sense of control and agency. No, I I, I love that. It, there's like, I don't even want to go off on where my head went with that, because I think it's such, it's a recurring theme in, in our, um, in our discussions from between each other right now beyond marketing situations, but that playing into fear as opposed to playing into positivity. And I've always been, I've always, again, even for myself as, as a, in my career, it's always, I want to point out to you why I'm so great, not why my competition is so awful. Right. You know, I, I can, I can do that and, and you're going to gain more respect for me, but there's, why am I going to beat them up? I want to tell you why I'm a value, what I have to bring to the table. And yet we, you know, too often go in the opposite direction. I was an early adopter of Nutrafol. I found out about it. I think, I don't think a lot of people knew about it then, believe it or not, through my doctor. And then I watched it and then I've watched it grow because all of a sudden it's all over the place. Um, and then when I saw that you were you were um, had a role in it, I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was cool. Great, great team to work with. I really love working with the CEOs. The three founders are just incredible people. Yeah, they definitely have made their mark in the in the in the, the mark in the marketplace. That's that's a little bit redundant. Um, so another thing that um, I I did a lot of research because I like to do that, and I saw a post on your Insta Nucleus's Instagram uh, account that was talking about the power of yes and. So I, I'm a big believer in that. In fact, I have a section in the book that I'm, I'm fin- I just well I'm just about to finish up now about that philosophy, which I learned from. Um, a friend of mine who teaches improv um, downtown and was actually on my podcast way back in the early days. So can you talk about how, how you see that fitting in to what yeah, you do? Yeah, that, that has fit in so often um, with different clients. Um, I have had the great good fortune of um, uh, being on the board of directors at Mohawk, a fine paper company, and working with them over the course of 15 years And um, I'll never forget, we were working in a session that was really about using brand principles for organizational transformation. 
And I'm working with a team that loads the trucks. They load the trucks and they never want to disappoint a client. And they uh, were frequently holding a truck to get a last minute order on that truck. And what would happen is there would be eight customers who had something late and one customer who got satisfied. And they understood that, but they, they had a yes culture. And a yes culture can get you into big trouble. It can overwork your people. It can create unintended consequences. And so we, too, picked up the idea of Yes And through improv, which we learned as people who do a ton of facilitation, and started talking to Mohawk about shifting from a Yes to a Yes And culture. Yes, of course, we can get this order. We'll get this to you tomorrow because saying yes and jeopardizing eight customers versus one wasn't what they wanted to do. Um, yes, and also helps us with our clients to always say, I want to validate you. There's something really important you're saying here, and I'm going to build on it mm-hmm. so I can take what you're giving me and we can start to shift or shape it. The minute you say no, you literally shut down creativity, you shut down new ideas, you shut down egos, and you shut down an ego, and all of a sudden, you lose some of the fuel that might be part of a great idea, of a new solution. So um, that goes you know, right to my two principles of optimism and generosity. Yes, and complies with both of those. Mm -hmm. And no seems kind of stingy to me. (laughs) Yeah, you know, because I always go through it. It's just, we're so conditioned to say yes, but, and give the 15 reasons why something's not going to work. And it's, whether it's working on a project or whether it's just your own personal life for that matter, because it just stops us. Yeah. And, but when you switch into that and it's just kind of, for me, it was a little bit life-changing. I have to be honest with you, because I took an improv class and I was like, oh my gosh, that's right. How many times do I do that? Coming up with all the reasons why something's not going to work. I'm struck by how many times you mentioned generosity, because every time you say that, all I can think of is Seth Godin, who I'm a huge fan of, (laughs) because that is one of his core principles. Um, Another thing that I found as I was doing my research was a quote on a post that you talked about on called the one word brief. And this is your words were, uh, and I quote you here, the word that inspires without dictating terms, the word that packs an emotional punch and reveals a truth and ambition. So can you talk about this? Because I think, you know, getting things into a condensed manner so that people are paying attention is, is, seems to be such a challenge for most people out there. And we get so caught up in, in a lot of words that mean nothing, mumble jumble. Yeah. Well, I, I will give full credit to one of my favorite people in the business, my mentor for many years. Um, he was the chief creative officer at Ogilvy and Mather, Steve Hayden. Um, Steve was kind and generous and demanding and I was an account person and I, I didn't have a team of strategic planners at the ready. And um, I said to Steve, how do I build a better brief for you? And he said, get it down to a sentence. If you can give me a word, even better. Now, 
I also will go back further than Steve. I am the daughter of two photographers. Um, and with artistic parents, somebody had to balance the checkbook and keep the trains running on time. And I think by the time I was six, I was doing a lot of that. But I also <laughs> realized the power of a great brief mm -hmm. um, and how to speak in a language that could inspire them to give me the car keys or do whatever it was I wanted. Um, I, I feel like in some ways, my entire career has been built around writing the best brief. And the best brief isn't just a creative brief, though that's where my career um, began. It is a brand brief. It is an organizational brief. Um, I, one of the one word briefs I didn't write that I admire the most that I teach in my class too, um, came out of work for Oreo many years ago. I think it's more than 10 years ago. And I'm pretty sure this came out of the Martin agency. And the one word brief was the end of a beautiful, uh, animated ad. And it was wonder filled. Mm, and you don't that. need to know more than that, right? You have two chocolate wafers, you twist them. And before you even lick, you look, you look at the depth and the velvety nature of that white stuff. And then anybody who's ever had an Oreo knows that you're going to just scoop that right out. And I can't think of a better way to marry values and the values of sharing you've literally got a cookie you can break in half and share mm -hmm. with somebody else or a pack there's always multiple oreos in a pack um <laughs> the, the the so many of their values and the core product attribute were captured in one beautiful made-up word so that's sort of always out in the front of my mind and um, just over a year ago, um, I had the great privilege of working again with my good friend, Brian Collins and his team, and we were supporting them in building the strategy out for rebranding the Institute of Design in Chicago, which really is the, the, the place and the space when the Bauhaus had to leave Europe. Uh, in World War II. Oh. And so incredibly intimidating, surrounded by brilliant brand people and strategists. Um, we listen deeply to what concerned them. The fact that about every 20 years they were going through sort of a major reinvention. And, and as we were listening to the, the things that concern them, we started taking each one out of the negative to see if we could twist it, wring it out with the positive and um, ultimately developed a one word brief for them. Embracing this ability to see the world and change. And that one word brief was evolutionaries. Mm. And that with some other guidance uh, in the brief fueled some amazing and internationally now award-winning work by by Collins, who does such phenomenal design work. I love it. I love it. As as you're 
sitting here and you're telling me all this, I'm like, wow, like I, I need to incorporate the one word into my one sentence routine because that's where I am. Cause I have trouble, not, I almost have trouble, but I do th- find it troublesome to get through to young people entering the industry that you need to get what your idea is, whatever it is in one sentence. You know, you, if you can't say Essential. it in a sentence, nobody's going to get it. Nobody's going to get it, whether it's the the client you're targeting or the people you're pitching to. And um, but that one word, those examples are just fantastic because I'm thinking evolutionaries. Of course, it says so much more than just what it is. Yeah, though I agree with you. The one sentence, um, the one sentence is permission to say more. Mm-hmm. If you do get someone in one sentence essentially the elevator pitch, you spill out into the lobby and they won't let you go. Right. (laughs) And then you've earned the right to tell them all the more about Mm -hmm. whatever it was. Um, But without that one sentence, you don't have permission. No, and I, you can't, you can't articulate, you can't persuade anyone that it's a good idea if you can't say it in one sentence, because you're kind of all over. And again, I think it goes back to what I said earlier. We've got so many tools now that we forget about the core of what it is that we're doing. And the tools are great, but they're just tools. They don't mean anything without really great strategy. Okay. So I have a few more questions. Um, One is about tools, actually, because you have an assortment of free tools on your, on your website. Um, the persona tool was one, probably one of the most extensive ones that I have and the best that I have ever seen. So I have two questions on this, you know, a, how did this, these tools come to be because, which is kind of goes into B, which is, I think a bit unusual for an agency of your caliber, who's worked with such big brands to offer anything for free. (laughs) Well, I guess it comes right back to, um, the principles of optimism and generosity, but it also comes down to, who I think we are at Nucleus. Um, we we almost never call ourselves an agency. I don't want to be an agent for mm-hmm. anyone. Um, I think people should have agency and and take mm-hmm. it, and companies should as well. Um, I find myself talking more or identifying more with the monikers of teacher and tool builder. Um, I am never going to be as expert at somebody's brand or organization as they are. They live it every single day. I respect that. I admire that. My superpower is a very rapid way to assimilate a lot of information and pattern recognition and the gift of articulation. And so when I put those two things together, that is part of of getting to being a problem solver or a facilitator, but I have never been able to do it without the guidance of other people. And that guidance, when I bring it down into shorthand, kind of looks like tools or Mm -hmm. templates. I remember when I first encountered branding, I think I was in a meeting with Unilever and they had this funny key thing. And then I was in a meeting with J&J and they had pillars. And I literally have a book of Xeroxes. I probably should scan them in at some point um, (laughs) that are all these different ways that people found um, helpful to define an idea. Um, 
And I took off from there. And I think that's going back 25 years ago. I was just fascinated with these things and then started making them. Then when you go into a room to facilitate a workshop, starting with a blank page is nobody's idea of a good time. So if I break that plane, right, and make it easy for people to start Mm -hmm. drawing or filling things in or thinking or categorize their thoughts, they begin to push the answers out. So call me lazy, but if my clients are starting to formulate the answers because I can provide some structure, then we're really going to move quickly. Um, I also think that the tools on our website, um, while we may be hacking tools that exist or coming up with new ways uh, to do things, none of them are ours alone. They are the amalgamation of collaborations, Mm -hmm. collaborating with Mark Barden and Adam Morgan of Eat Big Fish or collaborating with Collins or collaborating with Jolene Delisle and the folks at the Working Assembly. Like all of these collaborations have sharpened my ability to and and my desire to want to create tools to give myself a leg up. Sorry about that. Siri's trying to get in on the action here. That, that's right. I had Do Not Disturb on my phone. And then um, my brother texts me and I forgot that he comes through on Do Not Disturb. So there's a little noise back there as well. But that's part of the fun of podcasting, right? Um, you know, it, 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 and for those who don't know who are listening, um, Xerox is how we used to make copies. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I, I said that. No, I know, but it's, you know, I have, there's a lot of young people who listen to this as well as, as people in our age group. So um, it does sound like something out of the dark ages, though. It's just, it's just so funny. Okay. I have one more question before we move on to our, our lightning round. So, and this is probably a big one, (laughs) but human centered branding is something you clearly focus on. So I guess my question or rather my concern is like, how do we keep human centered in a world that is seems to be obsessed with AI. Uh, and I don't know if there's an answer because I, I worry what's going to happen without guardrails in place. I see the benefits. Um, I'm fascinated with a new tool that I discovered. You might be uh, called Poe, which kind of takes all of the chat GPTs and the mid journeys and it's all on one platform, which is just kind of makes life a little bit easier. And, and I, I see the value in it, but you know, how, how do we do that? How, I, how, or can we? I don't know. I, I'm loving AI right now. Our team is using MidJourney and recently we wanted to um, sort of look at the confluence between things that are incredibly British, that may seem old fashioned and, uh, and mash them up with culture today. And using MidJourney, we had teacup patterns, old British teacup patterns on sneaker collections. Oh, wow. Um, and it was just spectacular mm-hmm. and helped us, as usual, use an image for a thousand words. Um, and just like that, um, I've been getting ready to launch um, some content and I've been using chat GPT not to write anything, but almost like a human assistant <laughs> where I've asked it about certain words and where do we see these words used when they're used by uh, authors versus podcasters versus. So I 
I certainly believe that AI can um, support us mm-hmm. uh, a great deal. I certainly hope it does that um, with pharmaceuticals and genes and health um, so that we can move more quickly uh, to cure what has uh, heretofore been incurable. Um of course, it's going to need guardrails. And of course, people are going to use it for nefarious purposes. Mm-hmm. But to think about AI in one way is impossible for me right. because I think there are so many ways um, that we haven't even yet dreamed of using it. And I uh, I think there are much smarter folks than I who are going to figure out how to how hopefully to keep us creative and safe at the same time, though those things always don't go together. They don't always go together. You know, and I, I agree with you because I think there's such potential. I've used it for research a lot. Um, I've seen, I think the first time I saw Midjourney, one of my classes in the spring was they were doing their final project on Chanel and they had this beautiful picture of Carl Lagerfeld holding hands with Coco Chanel, both of them as old people. And I'm like, how did you do that? And they were like, it was mid-journey. And it was just, you know, it was just kind of kind of mind-blowing. But I do worry about the guardrails because we didn't do that with social media. And now we're in a pick. <laughs> there are no guardrails. And and I think I hope, I hope that's what happens. Anyway, I clearly could talk to you for forever. Um, and we will resume this again with martinis um offline. But I do like to finish up with a little lightning round of questions. So are you ready? I'm ready. Favorite social network? Instagram. Something people would never guess about you? I played the clarinet in the band and gave it up to twirl a flag so I could wear a skirt for one football season. I love it. I love it. I love it. I played the violin. I hated every minute of it. I don't know why I did, but I think I hated the thing I hated the most was having to carry the thing home with me. Um, uh, Last series you binged. I am in the middle of binging something called Turn on AMC, which is just a brilliant show about the Revolutionary War. And before that, I've become a big fan of AMC. It was Gangs of London. Um, And before that, something that's like 10 or 11 years old, but brilliant called Rubicon. So I go deep into the AMC archives and find these Smart, well-acted, incredible character-driven shows. I like character-driven. I'm a big fan of that myself. The last book you read? I will tell you the last book that left a massive impression on me, Richard Powers' Overstory, a book about trees that was about people, that was about trees, that was about people. It, it, is, it was like drinking the finest wine reading him. And I'm reading his next book called Bewilderment, which is also beautiful. Okay. Wow. I got some new stuff here I have not heard of. Food you can't live without? Oh, that's a good one. Um, you know, my other half is an amazing cook. And so I have such a wide ranging uh, set of options, but he might make the best pad thai I've ever had. Ooh. Well, that's very ambitious. He does sound like a cook. That's the last thing I think I would learn how to cook because there seems to be too many ingredients in there for me. And what motivates you to get up in the morning? I will crib a bit uh, from a Mary Oliver quote. Um, 
all my life, I have been a bride married to amazement. Um, I am in wonder about the world, about the sounds I hear, about the people I work with, about getting the opportunity to speak with you. I am literally amazed every day that I open my eyes and go, wow, what's going to happen next? Oh, I love it. And it does not surprise me um, as I'm getting to know you better and certainly through this podcast. So where can people find you if they want to connect with you? I am uh, always to be found at thenucleusgroup.com um, or on Instagram at, I think it's Elizabeth underscore Tallerman, um, where I have a currently have a stitching project I'm working on. Um, yeah, those are probably the okay. two best places. I will put all those links in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time today. Oh, Joanne, it's such a pleasure. And I can't wait for martinis in real life. Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note. Info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember... Whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there. <laughs>